Well, uh, it's good to see you. I hope you were able to either download or print out, however you do that, the material on the Psalms that we're going to be studying. I'd like to draw your attention to the first two pages. I want to make some introductory comments about the Psalms. The Psalms uh, consist of 150 separate Psalms. And for the most part, most people that study them or hear them preached on are are sporadic. You'll do one here and then you'll do something else and come back to a psalm. Uh, Rarely do you spend any time looking at the whole book. So I thought I'd give you some introductory notes just to give you a perspective on what, um, what the psalms are about. So if you have those notes or you have them on your phone or computer, whatever, would you take a look at them with me? Okay, two people said they would agree to taking the. Would it, so I'm trying to get some. Okay, yes, yes, just yes. if you if you don't have them, just listen carefully and maybe make a note to go back and and, and get what Fred had sent to you. Um, the Hebrew title Psalm is not Psalms. Psalms comes from a Greek word. The Hebrew title is listed there. Uh, the authors there are 150 of them. David, King David, wrote probably half of them, or maybe a little less than half of them. The others are involving those who were involved in the singing and worship, like Asaph wrote 12 of them. He was named by King David head of the choirs in in terms of the tabernacle later of the temple. He was, by his assignment from King David, very involved with music. Moses wrote one of the psalms, Psalm 90. Uh, it's the hymn book, and that is that third bullet. That's really, every time you read a psalm, just remember something. This was the hymn book of ancient Israel. This is what they sang in the temple. And this was organized, and it involved, it involved the singing with the voices of the congregation, plus it involved a lot of instruments. Some of those instruments are listed in the various New Test- Old Testament references in, in the Kings, but more particularly in the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Even a couple of the Psalms will list, uh, this is to be sung a, with the instrument of the lyre or something like that. And what I decided to do was just itemize uh, the five major themes that you see in the hymn book of Israel, the Psalms. There is one true God. Over and over and over again, the Psalms affirm that. And it is an ethical monotheism. This is a God who has revealed himself in his creation, revealed himself in his moral law. Ethical behavior is important to him because it reflects his character. The Ten Commandments are the reflection of the moral character of God. That's how the Psalms deal with those issues. The creation of the world is a major theme. God created everything, and that is a major theme of the Psalms. It's, it's one of the neat things about the Psalms is they're praising God for all of his creative work, praising God for the fantastic things that they see around them, praising God for his uh, control of the storms, his control of the, of the cycle of weather, the rain. I mean, all of those things. He's the God who's the creator. Yes, amen. And the importance of the fall of humanity, the importance of sin, in the sense that the Creator has a plan to deal with that. And then thirdly, which is so central, 
God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. His covenant, which is at the center of the Abrahamic covenant, but also the Mosaic covenant, which is how Israel was to walk with God. And then number four was sort of a variation of number three, the covenant loyalty of God and the covenant loyalty of his people. The Hebrew word there, we looked at that the other week, is chesed. It's a major, major term throughout the Psalms. And then finally, uh, eschatology, if you've never seen that word, that means the doctrine of last things, of end times. And the focus is the coming of Messiah. And I'd like you to look at the page two, or I don't know how you have it, front or back or whatever, but page two, right in the middle, I provided a little chart that shows all of the Messianic Psalms. All of the Psalms that are prophecy. All of the Psalms that are itemizing an event which is associated with the coming of the Messiah. And both the Lord Jesus and Peter, and in one case Paul, will quote these Psalms as they are preaching a sermon. Like Peter's sermons, which are recorded in the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts, are loaded with references to the Psalms. And it's these Psalms. So that's one of the amazing things about the Psalter. It has a lot of prophecy in it. It has a lot of details about the coming Messiah and, and both his first advent and his second advent. So that's an important point. We go to the Psalms not only to see their, 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 their worship and their themes of worship, what they're praising God for and so on, but also some very important prophetic material. Next week, Lord willing, when we study Psalm 2, you're going to see that. Psalm 2 is one of the most exciting psalms in the Bible. I love Psalm 2, and I hope you'll learn to love it too. Are there any questions about that? I really quickly summarized that, but there is a theology to the psalms. And that's what we tried to capture there in that third bullet. The fourth bullet just is uh, something you would expect to see as well, but it's unique because at some time, it's a little unsettling because the psalmist is calling on God to curse his enemies. He's calling on God to take vengeance on his enemies. These are what are called the imprecatory psalms. And that's a big word, uh, but I, I remember one time we discussed that. I remember writing it up on the board, but these are what we call the imprecatory psalms, where the psalmist is asking God to act against his enemies. And then, um, if you don't mind, I think it's important that you kind of dust off the cobwebs of your mind <laughs> and go back to English grammar class and just review what a figure of speech is. A metaphor, a simile, those are the two most widely used figures of speech in, in, in the Psalms. But, you, I mean, we speak in metaphors and similes all the time. I mean, just every, almost every sentence or every paragraph you speak, somewhere there's a metaphor or simile. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just the way we talk. Well, in the ancient world, that's how they talk, too. They used metaphors and similes all the time. And you, I'm, I will point them out sometimes as we're studying some of these psalms so that you just, you're kind of refreshing, oh yeah, this is a metaphor, it's a simile. And you just have to interpret it correctly. And then finally, and, and then it'll be done, the, the, the ancient text of the psalms that we have received 
divides the Psalter into five books. And I listed the, the various Psalms that are part of each book. Like book one is Psalm 1 through 41. But if you turn the page and look at Swindoll's synthetic outline, which is, that is one of his best synthetic, I love his synthetic outlines. I had to do one for every book of the Bible when I was in graduate school and seminary. But mine are good. <laughs> Swindoll's are fantastic. So since they're in the public domain, I can download them. I downloaded this. It's really quite wonderful. He breaks each one of the five books in its respective Psalms, 1 through 41, for example. But he deduces, and for the most part, I think he's right there, he deduces a major theme of each one of the five books of the Psalter. And, I mean, you can look at that. Again, most of you are probably going to forget some of this, but I think it's important for us to kind of get a big-picture overview of each book of the Bible. And the Psalms are so unique because it's really made up of 150 parts. And they're, they're sort of, they seem to be sort of disconnected, and yet there is a couple of themes that run through it, it meaning all the Psalms. And I, I hope we've been able to lay that groundwork a little bit for you. All right, Jim. Can you perhaps share how the collection of psalms, there's probably all the psalms they sang in the temple, but some of them, how some of them were selected to be part of the canon, or how this kind of got integrated into the, into the Old Testament? They. Uh, well, they were. Um, let me respond to it in, in two ways. Part one, they were collected throughout the history of, of particularly the monarchy. It is during the monarchy when this was, was most actively used because when they came back from the exile, which we just finished studying with Nehemiah, the, there was the temple and there was the completed psalm or hymn book. When Nehemiah, what we just finished study. The 150-part hymn book was done. It was completed. But during the monarchy, they are collected. And Asaph, who was the one that was chosen by David to be the head of the choir, that not was his official title, but that's really what he was, he started to write and started to collect them. And uh, David had written a lot of them. We think about 73 to 75 of them. So they would have been the ones that would have been collected first. He wrote some of them. We think 12. So there you're about 87. And then Moses had written one that had been used as a song, one of the earliest things they were singing at Psalm 90. That was immediately in. And the song of Moses, which is in Exodus 15, is also in the Psalter. So... It, it progressively grows throughout the history of temple worship during the monarchy period. The usual assumption is the 150 psalms were completed and were actively used, all of them, uh, at the end of the monarchy. By Josiah, they're pretty regularly being used. So the collection process, it's, it's a little more difficult to determine. Asaph started it. But then when he dies, and then his successors, no doubt, would have been the ones responsible for maintaining this hymn book and adding to it as, as they were written. And under all of this, Jim, has to be what the New Testament teaches us, the supervising work of the Holy Spirit. 
That's the best I can answer your question. That's a great question. The best I can answer it. Yes. uh, Would you recommend uh, a a study book by Swindell regarding the Psalms? You know, that's really, I don't know if Swindoll has, that's really a good question, Woody. I don't know if Swindoll has a study book on the Psalms. Yeah, if you Google it, Swindoll on the Psalms, it'll show up. If he did, I just, you know, I'm not sure he has. I'm not sure he has written a book singularly on the Psalms. Um, If he does, that's a worthwhile one to get. But I'm, I'm honestly not sure about that. I can recommend some other ones. But there are a lot, you know, you're, you're probably going to, eh, that's not really what I wanted Ekman. But I studied under a man named uh, 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 Alan Ross. He's written a three-volume uh, study of the Psalms. I mean, it's a total of 2,432 pages. That's probably not what you're interested in. <laughs> but it's wonderful. Uh, it really is wonderful. Swindoll has one called Living the Psalms. That, that, might be, that might be his, or at least uh, maybe a select commentary on some of them. I honestly don't know. I have never looked at what Swindoll has done on the Psalms. But uh, Fred's checking it out, Woody, if you're really interested. Maybe not all the Psalms. Okay, I wondered if it wasn't more selective. Philip Yancey has written a uh, wonderful book because Where is God When It Hurts? And what Yancey has done there is he chosen, he's chosen about 30 psalms that help us to be able to respond to and what the psalmist is doing when it hurts, when there's pain, when there's inexplicable things occurring to us and we're crying out to God and he doesn't seem to answer. And one of the, one of the chapters is entitled The Silence of God. That's quite a penetrating chapter because, and I'm sure all of you have been there to one degree or another. You're praying and praying and praying, and it just doesn't seem like God's answering. And is his silence evidence that he doesn't care? Now, what's the answer to that? No. <laughs> so it's that's a because that is a hard question. That is a hard question uh, to deal with the silence of God or the seeming silence of God. And uh, the psalmist does talk about some of that. There's one psalm that I'm going to get to it just a little bit further on where the psalmist just rails at God, just rails at God. Where are you? You don't care about me. You know, just on and on and on. And then about halfway through the psalm, then I remembered which is a great statement that you see throughout the song. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, what's, in your perspective, what is the connection between Job, the book of Job, Job's, and then uh, uh, Job, and then Psalms? And this idea of, because Job, we finished the book and we're, we know that God is in control of everything, but he did he didn't give a, a straight answer to Job. So we go to Psalms, and then we start seeing all these magnificent things about God. Do you think that's... I, I don't remember how the Hebrew, where in the Hebrew scripture, where the Psalms and Job, 
if it's the same? They are part of what are called the wisdom books of the Old Testament, which is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. All four of those books go together as what are called usually the wisdom literature of, of the Old Testament. And they all do deal, and, and that's, you, you had a very good insight there, Job doesn't always get the answers to his questions from God. God just chooses not to answer some of them. Or he answers a question that Job didn't ask in responding to Job. So uh, in a sense, some of the questions that Job poses to God are answered in the Psalms or the Proverbs. That's why, um, Daniel, in a way... um, Sometime I'd like to teach a class like this, but it would have to be a very long class. But to teach the wisdom literature of the Bible, Job is a contemporary of Abraham. He lived about 4,000 years ago. So start with Job and then deal with the Psalms and then deal with Proverbs, most of which were written by Solomon or accumulated by Solomon, and then end with Ecclesiastes, which was written at the end of Solomon's life. But I just think that, I mean, that would take, I mean, just, did you go through Job? Or you you mean, oh yeah, to go through Job. Job's a book I don't like to teach. It is not a book, I don't like to teach Job. It's hard. But it, it raises the kinds of questions that are the questions of life. They are the questions that people ask, Christians and non Christians. And uh, and the Psalms helps us to get some insight into some of those answers. And then the Proverbs are just the the basic common sense approach to life. And then Ecclesiastes, well, anyway. I don't think I've answered your question there, Daniel, (laughs) but that's part of how you've got to integrate all that stuff together. Didn't they really put the joke with that bed pretty much in the end of the last few books? Basically, God says, I'm God, and who are you? I have the right. In a sense, that's right. To me, it, it, it was true. Well, I have pretty clear at the end. Yeah. One of my favorite books yeah. is a former military pilot full of lots of vigor. Unless you know your own place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I... You, you, you are absolutely right. I mean, God, at the end, says, Job, sit down, Job. Right. Uh, now, now I'm going to finally deal with all this. And where were you and I created, et cetera, et cetera. But it, and I, I absolutely agree with you. It is affirming the absolute sovereignty of the Lord of the universe to do what he wants to do. But at the same time, it is important to be able to get answers to some of those questions. And the other wisdom literature does help us to answer some of that. But ultimately, you fall back on who's sovereign. You or God? That's right. Jim, I think maybe it's helpful uh, for the guys to, to also remember that when, when he falls silence, silent, he also says in, in Scripture, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's by faith that we can cling to that when... <laughs> We have no hope, yes. it seems. That's right. But there are times when things are really rough and inexplicable. You're, even though you trust God, you still have those questions. still have them. 
Well, would it be all right if we start? I mean, it's <laughs> 10 after 12, all right? The first psalm is uh, really the introduction to the Psalter. It is, it's short, it's pithy, but it's profound as really it introduces the major themes and major terms of the Psalter. So what I'd like to do is read the first three verses and then tear it apart and then put it back together. And then read the last three verses and tear them apart and put them back together. Psalm 1, I've preached on this many times in a lot of different ways and a lot of different situations. But Psalm 1 affirms a fundamental principle about the human condition. Life is about the choices you make. You don't have three or four choices. You have two, and only two. To choose to live your life according to the standards of God, or to choose to live your life according to the standards of what the psalmist calls the ungodly. The choice is, am I going to acknowledge and live by the standards of God, or am I going to choose to reject those standards and live my life as an autonomous human being? Am I going to choose to live my life following a path that is laid out in God's verbal revelation to me, what we call the Bible, what in the Old Testament they call the law? Or am I going to choose to live my life according to the standards that the world manifests and proclaims and that I particularly want to embrace as a rebellious sinner. It's about which path do I choose to follow. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like, now that's a simile, he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and in its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the psalmist is describing a path for life. But it's fascinating, it's really somewhat unusual, but it's fascinating how he starts it. It's not this, it's not that, and it's not this. This is what it is. So he's highlighting this choice immediately, right out of the chute. A wise life is not that, and it's not that. 
And it's not that. It's this. So it gets your attention. And I'm sure that's why the psalmist wrote it that way. It gets your attention. And it, it focuses on the realms of thinking and believing and behaving and belonging. The things that are the normal conditions that a human being faces. So he says, blessed is the man. Now, blessed is just one of those words, amen, yes, wonderful. What does it mean? Because immediately you kind of think of the material uh, blessings or characteristics or qualities of life. That's not usually what it means in the Bible. The blessed aspect is a spiritual word. It's a word that reflects a condition. It's a word that reflects the consequences of your choices. It's a word that reflects being right with God. They are at the core of what begins the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. We call those the Beatitudes. Blessed is, blessed, remember that? Same, Jesus is doing the same thing Psalm 1 is doing. A person who walks with God, who is right with God, a person who is joyfully and spiritually, comfortably right with God, is a person who's made a series of choices. Choice number one, I'm not going to walk. Walk is a metaphor. It doesn't mean, you know, you're walking from this room to your car. Walk is a metaphor for how you're living your life. Walk is the normal contours and patterns of living. It's the normal, expected, anticipated, normal. You're walking. And walking through life is a journey. So you've chosen that you're going to live not in the counsel of the wicked. So a person who's right with God and enjoys that intimacy intimacy and fellowship with God is a person who has made a very decisive decision. I am not going to seek the counsel, the advice, the wisdom, the pattern of an ungodly person, of a person whose life reflects the rejection and rebellion against the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. A person who has chosen, I don't want anything to do with God. And the psalmist is saying, why in the world would you seek the counsel of someone like that? So right out of the chute. A person who's right with God, who walks with God, who has intimacy with God, has made the decision to not seek the counsel of ungodly people. Now, how does that apply in 2020? That wasn't a rhetorical question. 
I want you to think about that. That, that. That's the importance. This is why this stuff just transcends time. It doesn't matter whether you're reading it 4,000 years ago or you're reading it five minutes ago. This is really applicable to the human condition. To be right with God is to decide up front, ipso facto, I'm not going to seek the counsel of ungodly people. Amen. What does that mean in 2020? Glenn? Okay. In terms of okay, life issues, how you look at prenatal life, how you look at the fetus, etc. Okay. Okay. We we live in Satan's world. This is a world dominated by Satan. And Satan mm-hmm. is there every place that you look, and if you you don't have your guard up, you'll be sucked in. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know we could, um, we're surrounded by all kinds of advice and guidance. You can walk into those ancient things called bookstores, <laughs> where you can find every philosophy, Absolutely. every religion every track of thought and, and why avail yourself of that when the truth that's right so it really does it does beg the question are you careful wise discerning about what you read about what you watch and, and I don't necessarily mean entertainment but in terms of you know I, I need some counsel on this I'm, I'm not sure what to do What's the psalmist saying? Your first choice should not be the advice and counsel of the ungodly person. I mean, it's just, he's just saying, right out of the chute. If you're right with God, you don't seek the counsel of someone who's chosen to rebel against God, someone who's chosen to not embrace the values and virtues and standards of God. Why would you seek their counsel? I mean, it's like he's just he's, he's floating that out. He's laying it on the table. That doesn't make sense. So why would you do it? Because when he uses the term ungodly, it's a very strong Hebrew term. ESV translates it the wicked to intensify what that word really means. The ungodly is used in another part of the Old Testament as that one who commits gross evil in the sight of God. In another part of the Old Testament, it's the person who stands guilty before God. It's a very intense word. So the psalmist is choosing something that it's like, oh, well, of course I wouldn't do that. But in 2020, we can do that a lot. And the Internet and the social media phenomenon exacerbates that issue for us because we are being bombarded with junk all the time. And unless you're wise and discerning, you're just... You're, you're taking in stuff that is shaping how you think, shaping how you act. And the psalmist is saying, if you're right with God, knock it off. That is not the path of wisdom. To seek the counsel of the ungodly, of the person engaged in gross evil, of the wicked. Of, again, and these are the different ways it's used in the Old Testament. The person who stands guilty before God. Why would you seek their counsel? He moves on. Second negative, nor stands in the way of the sinners. The idea, this is really quite powerful. 
The idea is here you're standing and you're gazing at and you're looking at and you're considering and you're contemplating the way of the wicked, the way of sinners. So you've moved from seeking their counsel to now you're contemplating, you're thinking about, you're considering, you're halting what you're doing. Oh, I like that. I'm considering that. I'm contemplating that. The way. The lifestyle of the sinner who has chosen willfully to disobey God. And I'm standing there and I'm contemplating and I'm thinking about and I'm considering and I'm weighing the benefits of that lifestyle. Ooh, that looks attractive. Ooh, that looks rewarding. And so you stand there and you contemplate and you consider and you weigh. The person who's right with God doesn't consider evil, doesn't contemplate evil, doesn't think about it and weigh its benefits. Thirdly, the person who's right with God, who walks with God, doesn't sit. Now you're in collusion with. Now you're identifying with. You're sitting with scoffers. You're sitting with those who ridicule the things of God. You're sitting with people that are not of integrity, you're sitting with, you're, con, you're, you're identifying with those who are outrageously, defiantly opposing God. Wicked? Sinners? Scoffers. Those who mock God. Mock his standards. Mock his virtues. Mock his values. Mock his standards. And thereby mark, mock his very person. No reasonable pe- person believes that stuff anymore. No reasonable, rational person in the 21st century still holds to that standard. For goodness sake, come into the 21st century. In posing that question, they're mocking God. They're mocking you, but they're really mocking God. You mean you still believe that? You still hold to that? You still believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? That's a covenant where God stands as witness? Nobody believes that anymore. That's not mocking a standard created by government. That's mocking a standard sourced in the creation ordinance of God in Genesis 2. You're mocking God's standard. You're treating frivolously something God holds dear. Is there much of that going on in 2020? It's everywhere. You see, when you study Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 1, you start to see 
a very significant truth of Scripture. If you walk with God, you're part of a counterculture. The culture is going one way. You're going the other. You're not going with the flow of accommodating to culture. You're going against the flow. I mean, look at those words. It intensifies. Walks not. Stands not. Sits not. Each one you get closer and closer to collusion with evil. And the psalmist is saying, life is about choosing a path that you're going to walk. And it's not this, it's not this, and it's not this. What is it? I just thought that the simplified thought is that you be very careful uh, who you associate with, you know, friends and, and associates. Uh, That's part of it. Part of it, Glenn. I got two things here. <clears throat> when I say he stands in the way of sinners, I took it as blocking sinners, preventing them. Right? But what you're saying is uh, stands in the way means do not participate. Is that how I should interpret that? It's more stand with them. Stand with them. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, it stands in the way. No, don't go along with them. In my head, I'm seeing you know, blocks that, but it's something. That, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it, but it, remember how I tried to unpack that? Because what I tried to do here was really accurately summarize this metaphor. Because sit, stand, uh, walk, sit, they're all metaphors. So stand. I tried to unpack it metaphor. It's like I said, standing, you're not standing in the way. You're standing and you're contemplating and you're considering and you're weighing the way of sinners, the way they're living their life, their lifestyle. That's the idea. So you're standing there thinking, ooh. And you're con- See, you're not running away from it. You're not turning your back on it. You're standing there. And you're watching and weighing and contemplating and considering. And the longer you do that, the more attractive it becomes. Sure. That's the, that's the language of this metaphor. I'm just yeah, I mean, I, am I, yeah, what you said is, but I don't... You were you were like you were, like it's, it's blocking. That's not what it's. You're not blocking it. You're just maybe I should join the flow. <laughs> okay. Maybe I should get in get with the groove. That's how the 1960s talked about it. We don't talk that way anymore. I don't know what we say now. But it, I mean, this is. I mean, this is this is. Uh, I'm good. This yeah, no, no, I know. I just want to embellish a little bit. This is the way people are, isn't it? You you. Who walks not in the council. You seek the advice and counsel. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, I'll go with that. And then two weeks later, you're with that same person, the same organization, the same book, and now you're in a whole new chapter, and they're saying some other things. Wow, I need to think about that. That's attractive. I kind of like the sound of that. So now you're weighing and contemplating and considering. Maybe I want to get in that flow, the way of the sinner. And then you do, and all of a sudden you find yourself sitting. 
you're in collusion with, you're identifying with, what? Those who now mock God. You've gone from seeking their counsel to contemplating their lifestyle to joining it. Now you're in collusion with it. You're identifying with it, and you find yourself doing what is actually occurring. They're scoffing and mocking God. Nobody in 2020 believes that anymore. You mean you still hold to that old belief? Now, I don't, I'm pretty sure what I just said is not foreign language to you. That is all around us. I mean, I've had people look me in the eye. Do you mean you still hold on to that old idea that the Bible's the word of God? I don't know if anybody believes that anymore. I've had people say that to my face. What is that reflecting? What that word in Hebrew, scoff, you're ridiculing the verbal revelation of God. You're mocking it. No person in the 21st century believes that anymore. Now you're sitting, you're in collusion with that, which is extraordinary. So the next, the, my next question was about the scoffers. Is it scoffing God or just scoffers in general? Because how does this also tie in with the legalists, people that have a big, very legalistic view? Is it not a guard against that as well? Well, I would, I would think that is a part of this. But the, the seat of the scoffers is that one who mocks and scoffs and ridicules the things of God. And in ridiculing and mocking the things of God, you are mocking God. Sure, but what about the legalists that will mock someone for doing uh, well, every four on the way up? Seriously, right? Well, in that sense, Glenn, I mean, I I don't know all the specifics you mean by that, but in that sense, the rigid legalist is mocking and scoffing at the grace of God. Right. So, in a sense, that would fit. Okay. Thank you. Jim, uh, when we have the Holy Spirit within us, having received Christ, and we have some new believers uh, in this group, it can be quite subtle, um, and um, we find ourselves far from our original mission and course of being in the Word and praying and seeking God and attending church and being encouraged by fellowship with others. Um, but it's, it's kind of subtle. Uh, would you kind of comment on that? And I remember years ago you made a statement uh, to this group. Um, you were talking to a man, and he said, after many years of great success financially, I've, I put my ladder against, and he's talking about his life, no, I was leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean that that's right. So he is that individual speaking of that. We have a good memory, but that individual would have said if he was reading Psalm uh, one, the walk stands and sits. That's where I was. 
I was leaning my ladder against that wall. He comes to know Christ, and he realizes, and because he had ruined so much, he didn't lose his fortune. He lost his wife and his two daughters. So, you know, he says, I, I was leaning against the wrong wall because everything I was doing was self-destructing. Because the counter to that is what follows the adversative in verse 2. But, but. This is the answer to Fred's question. But, not the advice of the ungodly, wicked person. Not to contemplate and consider the lifestyle of the sinner who's chosen rebellion against God. Not to sit, to identify with, to be in collusion with those who scoff and mock God. But, if it's not that, and it's not that, and it's not that, what is it? His delight is in the law of the Lord. Contrary to the counsel, the lifestyle, and identifying with the sinner, his delight is in the word of God. And on it, he meditates day and night. Think about that. If his delight is in God's verbal revelation, and he meditates on it, that's where he gets his counsel. That that is what he considers and contemplates as a lifestyle. What is this telling me about that? And instead of scoffing and mocking, I want to walk in obedience with the values and virtues and standards of this book. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. You remember what he adds? It's helpful, it's necessary, it's strategic for reproof, for correction, for teaching, and for training in righteousness. Second Corinthians or Second Timothy three sixteen explains in in filling out the details of what it does. That's where you get your counsel. It reproves, it corrects, it teaches, it trains in righteousness. That's that's where you get the parameters and boundaries of the lifestyle of one who's right with God. That's, That's where you get the answers to why the values and virtues of standard of God are not to be mocked, but to be obeyed, because he's the creator, he's the redeemer, He knows me better than I know myself. As one of the men a number of years ago in one of my uh, early morning Bible studies on Wednesday said of the Bible, oh, I get it. It's the manufactured handbook. I would never call the Bible that. But he got it. The manufacturer, the creator, the redeemer, it's his handbook. This is how you live. Amen. And so the psalmist is, this is extraordinary 
incredible two verses. It summarizes like you read through verse 1 and 2, and then you have a big bracket. See the rest of the Bible for further explanation. See deep, for further details, see the other 65 books of the Bible. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an incredible summary that you have to choose. Life is about a choice. Where am I going to get my advice and counsel? Where, what am I going to contemplate and consider and weigh as a lifestyle choice? What, wh- whom am I going to identify with? It's either the things of the rebels or the things of my Savior revealed in Scripture. And that's the, you don't have three choices. You have two. You don't have four choices. You have two. And the psalmist is just laying it out. There are two paths of the life. Which one are you going to choose? Yogi Berra said, when I come to a fork in the road, I take it. That's the wrong way to think. <laughs> That's not the answer. You have to choose. And if I, if I could, and you know, I worked in that area as a minister most of my life with young adult men. I didn't work with women. But it, I just wanted to drill this stuff into their minds. With my children, I just wanted to hammer them over the head with this. That's, a, that's another figure of speech. You probably got that, didn't you? But I mean, it's because this is what it is all about. This is what it is all about. And the answer to this is not in politics or on Wall Street. Not that those things aren't important, but it's... It, well, I have all my stuff because I make lots of notes, but you have your Bible. It's that book or it's what out there offers you. And he is saying, the one who's right with God delights in the word of God. That's a strong word, delights. And therefore meditates on it. That's where you get your counsel. That's where you get the parameters of your lifestyle. And that's where you don't mock, you worship. You you don't scoff, you adore. You don't find repulsive. You love the things of God. Got it? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we guys can get off the path uh, from time to time pretty easy. And um, can you just comment on maybe tools? If we feel like we're sliding away from God and moving, you know, if you say the distance between myself and God has changed, guess who moved? Mm-hmm. And um, so can you kind of give us some basic primer steps on, like, so we can walk consistently with the Lord, steadily with the Lord, and grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord? Well, I mean, it's the standard things that most people would say, but they're worth repeating. I mean, one is you you spend time in God's Word. That's what the psalmist is saying in the end of verse 2. That isn't important. It's your handbook. It's your guidebook. It's your inspiration. It's your advice. It's your counsel. But with that also comes, and they're very tightly connected, that you are in a church where that book is being honored, proclaimed, and taught. 
they're not preaching from Oprah's recent book club you know, uh, recommendation. And I choose her because everybody kind of knows her. She's a pretty popular figure. No, it's the Word of God. It's not the most recent novel that really pierced your heart. It may be good, but it's God's Word. And then thirdly, I think it is really surrounding yourself in, that, in your church as part of it, but even, and that's, I assume, why one of the reasons you guys come to a study like this, where you're with other men uh, or other couples or whatever the situation is, where there's that encouragement that comes from walking with God. And there's that stimulus, there's that encouragement, there's that nurturing. Because we are in this together. And the greatest gift God gives us is other Christian believers. That's the great, one of the greatest gifts he gives us. Because we're not alone in this. We're all on the same journey. And then the other, they're all in a... Uh, connected, but is the, the importance of prayer. This constant, Paul writes at the end of Philipp, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. It's just that ongoing conversation in God with God. You're just bringing him, drawing him into everything. He wants to be in everything. He's not some absentee landlord. He wants to be in every part of your life. And the more he is, the more convicting that becomes, the more comforting that is, and the assuring that is, that you are a child of God and you belong to him. Even in what John Bunyan called in the Pilgrim's Progress, the sloughs of despond. And if you don't know that book, by the way, that's one of those that should be on your book list. Read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a do any of you know what I'm talking about? It's yes. a great book. I mean, it, you know, he was a Puritan. He lived in the 1600s. It is just a great book. And one of the neat things about Pilgrim's Progress are the friends he gathers along the way that help him on the journey. And Pilgrim is the name of the Christian. You know. Anyway, that's the best I can to answer your question. Can we do verse 3? Because I told you, I wanted to get through three verses today. And we're only two-thirds of the way there, and we have four minutes. So no more questions. <laughs> Verse three. What's the result? What does this path produce? What does this choice result in? Prosperity. Yes. Look at how he puts it. This is an agricultural society. He's like a tree. What's the name of that figure of speech? A simile. I just, it's all right for you to learn that again and refresh. That's a good thing to do. All right. He's like a tree. But a tree that has these characteristics. Planted by the streams of water. Nobody's going to consciously plant a tree in the Sahara Desert where there's no water. It's going to die. Well, you can, but if there's no water, it's going to die. So you plant it near a stream. Now, remember, it's a simile. So what's the source of life? What's the source that promotes growth? The Word of God. Planted by the streams of water. The Word of God, it takes you back to the end of chapter of verse 2. 
It's got to be nurtured. It's got to be fed. It's got to be enriched. Secondly, it yields its fruit in its season. It is a fruitful, productive tree. As you're nurtured and, and, and grow through the word of God, it begins to produce its fruit. Now, using a New Testament passage, wouldn't it be wise or at least acceptable to go to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. That God's Spirit, using his word, he inspired it, produces this fruit in you. Love, joy, peace, patience. Those nine qualities of life. Because like a tree that has plenty of water and nutrients, it's going to start producing fruit. And so a life that chooses not this, not this, not this, but God's word is a life that begins to yield the spiritual fruit that comes from the inspired word of God that you're meditating upon. And its leaf does not wither. It's a full spiritual life. Not dead, it's robust, living, pulsating with the spiritual fruit of the Holy Spirit who inspired that word. It's not dying, it's alive. It's living the resurrection power. I'm using New Testament language now. It's using it's living the resurrection power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And it's eternal life physical body will die but the spiritual life goes on and all that he does he prospers now please don't understand prosper to just be your stock portfolio or your bank account it can mean that can be but it, remember the whole focus of the simile is a flourishing nurturing fruitful life so the prosperity must be defined according to the spiritual qualities God's producing. You're fruitful. You're prospering. You're growing. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.29 and Galatians 4.19 and 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the goal the Father has for us. And so the prosperity, using New Testament languages, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. Your bank account may or may not be growing. And with the last week or so of the stock market, you know, from one hour to another, you're not sure anything. Now, I'm being a little facetious, but to try to drive home, that is not the main focus of the term prosperity. So life is about choosing a path. How you're going to live that life. The psalmist is encouraging us right out of the chute of the Psalter. Live the path that delights in the word of God and meditates upon it. 
not this, not this, not that, but this. That's a great way to start the psalm, isn't it? Yes, amen. It's laying out the clarity of the 66 books of the Bible. Choose the path that God has revealed to us. Not the path that vice and lifestyle and identification with the wicked. It's a pretty clear choice. And it faces every single one of us around this table every single day. You have to choose. How am I going to live my life today? If you're, if you're coming to a class like this and you're in a church where God's Word is taught and you, you yourself enjoy reading the Bible, and I'm not saying you've got to read it an hour, that's not the point. I'm not going to set up a rubric for you. You decide, but it's an important part of your life. You're going to start to see the fruit that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in your life. I've walked with the Lord since 1972, and I don't ever want to go back. The psalmist is helping us to make sure we understand a major principle, choose wisely. Okay, I'm going to pray, because I've kept you way too long today. I apologize for that. Lord, thank you for the introduction to the psalms. We're only halfway through Psalm 1. But it's an enriching, powerful, gripping, riveting psalm because it lays out a fundamental truth of life. You have to choose the path you're going to follow. And the psalmist is saying, it's not this, it's not this, and it's not this. It's this. It's a path of delighting in the Word of God, meditating upon it as a source of counsel, is how to live our lives in terms of a lifestyle and what we're going to identify with. We want to identify with you and everything you stand for, your values, your virtues, your standards. We love you because of what Jesus has done for us. We want to walk with you. We don't want to walk in seeking advice of the ungodly. We, we want to walk with you. So help us to keep our, our focus on you, our thoughts pleasing to you, that we're finding the nurture and enrichment in your word. We surround ourselves with men and others who love you and love your word too. We're, we're being instructed in a church that preaches the word of God, and we're finding the delight of just talking to you, having the conversation with you. We call that prayer. Just talking with you and sharing every aspect of our life with you, and learning what it means to love you and to walk with you, a path of the godly, of the righteous. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for each one of these men. May they be men of faith and men of God who walk with you. May they represent you well. May we all represent you well in what we do and what we say for Christ's sake. Amen. See you next week.